So Jason, I wanted to ask you about relationships in prison, like intimate relationships. I'm always so surprised when people are able to have an intimate romantic relationship and keep it for decades. Is that something that surprised you? Yeah, I, I'd be surprised if I wasn't surprised. You know, it's <laughs> it's a remarkable testament, I think, mm-hmm. to people on both ends of that equation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, you know, anyone who's ever been in a long distance relationship probably knows how that can be tricky, right? Um, but you're right. always and free. now you have people in your business all the time. It's the opposite of spontaneous and romantic, right? And yet, true love finds a way. When I saw that with that resentencing, he would only have 14 years left, Maggie, I thought to myself, well, I can wait 14 years for him. That's what my gut, my heart was telling me. From Lava for Good, I'm Maggie Freeling, and this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Melvin Ortiz. On the evening of December 23rd, 1997, two masked gunmen walked into Effie's Pizza Village in Redding, Pennsylvania, to try and rob it. But things went awry, and the restaurant's beloved owner, George Klauser, wound up dead. The family says that the response of the neighbors has been overwhelming, proving how much the young shop owner meant to the community that meant so much to him. And the family says that the pain is made even harder to bear because the men who killed 29-year-old George Clauser are still out there. About a month later, the police placed a $10,000 reward in the local paper to find those gunmen. A man came forward saying that 17-year-old Melvin Ortiz told him that he killed George Clauser. The man's girlfriend said she witnessed this confession. Melvin was swiftly arrested. He was charged with second-degree murder, robbery, aggravated assault, reckless endangerment, possession of an instrument of a crime, and attempted theft by unlawful taking. Neighbors on Ortiz's block were just as shocked. He's a very nice person, and we didn't think he would do something like that. On June 15, 1999, after a highly publicized trial, a jury convicted Melvin Ortiz of second-degree murder and sentenced him to life without parole. However, Melvin had a solid alibi. 19 witnesses said he was at a birthday party, and the man who claimed Melvin confessed to him had a much more sordid history than the prosecution and police presented. Like, all this just came out years later after I'm incarceration. Like, he was getting away with it because, you know, he's uh, working with the police, stuff like that. They've made a lot of effort and put a lot of energy and effort into covering up for him. My name is Melvin Ortiz. I've been incarcerated for 24 years for a crime I did not commit. I am innocent. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Melvin Ortiz was born on January 5th, 1980, to Maria and Juan Ortiz. You know, I was born in Puerto Rico, and Omacao, Puerto Rico, He's the youngest of three brothers who loved to roughhouse and wrestle. When he was a kid, Melvin dreamed of being a boxer. Melvin's parents brought their kids to church every Sunday and taught their sons right from wrong. At family dinners, mom's cooking was a favorite. When Melvin was five, the family moved from Puerto Rico to New York in search of a better life. Having language barriers has been hard on them to get a good job and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, they did pretty much what they could, you know, to raise us, raise us right. And, you know, to me and my eyes, did a fantastic job doing that. Their first home was in the Bronx, New York. Melvin remembers this as an exciting time. Seeing snow for the first time, so it was fun and and then, you know, that whole experience was just, you know, as a child was was great. So how old were you when you moved to Reading, Pennsylvania? I was about, I was very young. I was probably about the third grade, you know, about, I think it was at like nine years old, something like that. Melvin's parents said they moved to Reading because Reading had a large welfare program that assisted poor families like theirs. Reading, Pennsylvania, was quite different from the Bronx. They moved from a borough with 1.2 million people to a city with around 75,000. If you look at Reading on a map, it's between two bigger cities, Pennsylvania's state capital, Harrisburg, and Philadelphia. And there's a lot of farmland in between. Reading was once a major transportation hub on the Reading Railroad. Yes, that Reading Railroad from Monopoly. But after the decline of heavy industry and the railroads which helped Reading prosper, the city was on a decline. The population, which reached nearly 120,000 at its peak in the 1930s, had dropped in half by the 80s and its economy crumbled. By 2011, Reading, Pennsylvania was dubbed the poorest city in America, with 41% of the city living in poverty. Around the time Melvin's family moved to Reading in the early 90s, other Latino families were also moving in. Today, 
61% of the population identifies as Hispanic or Latino. But back in the 80s and 90s, Latinos were still a minority in Reading. And Melvin says that was scary. There was a park, uh, I forgot what the name was, but we often used to go there to, um, to jump in the river and swim and stuff like that. So there was a, like a water plant right next to it. So a few times we went behind the water plant and we discovered that uh, there was marking of the circle with the cross, like the, the KKK things mm. that used to go on. And up the street where we used to live, like two blocks up, there was uh, like a chapter there. So, yeah, like you see the, the Confederate flag and stuff like that. Um, so definitely that was that was there at that time. You know, I, I personally experienced being called a spit three times in my life down there while living down there. So seeing those type of things, it just make you see things a little bit different than than other people, especially with the with the police and stuff like that. Melvin wasn't a stranger to the police. In 1994, when Melvin was 14, he was arrested for receiving stolen property. Although his parents tried to raise their boys right, local residents describe Reading as a city that sucks you in, into its system and into its crime. Other robberies had plagued the city in the weeks before the homicide at Effie's Pizza. In fact, Effie's Pizza was also robbed just 12 days before the night of the homicide. I really didn't feel comfortable in Reading. I didn't feel like there was pretty much a future day. But Melvin's dad did believe in a future for his son. He found a job corps program that would help Melvin train for a trade, like mechanics or electronics. When I got there, what caught my interest was um, like plumbing because it dealt a little bit with everything. So, you know, I seen the things that they build and it was, it was, it just seemed real cool. The school was about two hours away in Red Rock, Pennsylvania. And Melvin didn't have his own car, so he and his brother would take the bus and stay at a dorm during the week. And, you know, I just felt good about it. You know what I mean? I felt like I see myself, you know, doing good, doing, doing good in life. And just, you know, I felt like that was uh, my ticket out, out of Reading and to be away from all the, all the stuff that was just going on there. Melvin loved job corps school. He loved meeting new people, and he made good friends in the dorm across the hall. He envisioned himself graduating from the program, surrounded by the same love, camaraderie, and encouragement that he witnessed at one of the graduations. But mostly, he saw himself making his parents proud. In the winter of 1997, Melvin came home to spend Christmas with his family. He was feeling great about life. Things were going smoothly. But on December 23rd, Melvin's life would change forever. That morning, I went downtown with my sister-in-law. And there, that's when I met, that's when I bumped into Isaac. Isaac Figueroa was a close friend of Melvin and his brothers. So Isaac told me, he was like, listen, um, my son's birthday party tonight, and he gave me an invitation. I said, sure, you know, you're going to have to pick me up. So he picked me up between 6 6.30. At the birthday party, there was no drinking or smoking allowed inside, so Melvin and his brother spent most of the night outside the door to the apartment, letting people in and out and talking with people through the window. 
I stood there throughout the whole night to like 9.30. That's when Isaac took Melvin home. Melvin had just spilled a drink on his pants and wanted to hurry up and change so he could get back to the party. He had been crushing on a girl there named Tracy, and he wanted to flirt with her. So he raced home, quickly pulled off his khaki pants, threw on a pair of black ones, and headed back with Isaac. Around 11 p.m., Melvin's longtime friend Cynthia Jacques called him. A murder had happened at Effie's, just a block away from her house. She was terrified and asked Melvin to come over and keep her company. At around 7.30 p.m. that same night, two masked gunmen walked into Effie's and tried to rob it. They shot the owner, George Klauser, in the side while he was cleaning the grill. The gunmen then struggled to open the register, but they ultimately gave up after a few minutes and fled empty-handed. George was airlifted to a nearby hospital, but by the time he arrived, it was too late. The 29-year-old, who had named his restaurant after his wife and lived above it with his family, was dead. Witnesses described the gunman as 18 to 24 years old. One was 5 foot 8, 180 pounds, the other 5 foot 6 with a thin build. The original police report from a witness described the gunman as two Hispanic males with Spanish accents, both masked, one wearing white pants and a blue hoodie, and one wearing black pants and a purple hoodie. Melvin is a 5 foot 7 Hispanic male. That evening, at the time of the shooting, he was wearing a black hoodie and khaki pants. Police wanted swift justice for the Klausers, but after a few weeks, they had nothing. That's when police offered a $10,000 reward. And right away, a man came forward saying he knew one of the gunmen, the man who pulled the trigger. And his name was Melvin Ortiz. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. The man who came forward to the police and named Melvin Ortiz as the murderer was 19-year-old John Caltigerone. He told them that Melvin had approached him to ask for help robbing a business in the area to make some quick money. Kelty Jerome said that around midnight on the night of the crime, Melvin called him and said, quote, things got messed up and the gun just went off. So when I learned about this warrant that they had for me, I was pretty much in shock. You know, when they told me, especially when they told me what it was for. And I was like, I was taken back. I'm like, what? The police descended onto the Ortiz house looking for Melvin. I called home and I was like, yo, like, what's going on? I was spoke to my to my father and he's like, yo, listen, um, you got to come over here. These people are here for you. And I said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going over there. I didn't physically tell him that, but I just told myself that, like, 
Nah, I'm, I'm not going to go over there. It's just, it, the whole situation just felt wrong. But Melvin's mom was adamant that it would be easier if he just turned himself in. She said, listen, only the guilty runs, you know what I mean? And I'm like, well, I gave in. I said, okay, we will go down there and fix the situation. And, um, and when I found out the date that the crime happened, that's when Isaiah's party. He knew he didn't commit the crime, but his mom's advice was also risky. So he was relieved he had a solid alibi, the party. And he decided to go down to the station with his parents, his pastor, Isaac, and Isaac's wife, Shannon. Shannon made a list of the alibis that was there at the party, and we all went down there. And they confidently brought the list down to the station. You know, but what I didn't think about was that what these people were going to do. It didn't matter what I had to say, what type of evidence, the alibis that I, that I had to present. And they just, it, just, it just didn't matter. All they wanted was to get in an arrest. Melvin never left the police station that day. In fact, it was the last time he was ever free. I knew him before he went to prison, um, but we really didn't get close until after he was indicted and had turned himself in. Victoria Blanco first met Melvin when they were both teenagers. She was in her last year of high school, and initially, she says it was more of a friendship. Victoria says she started writing Melvin in jail because she thought he was cute. And at the same time, you know, I was still doing my thing as a teenager, you know, as far as love life is concerned, I would still go on dates, still had other boyfriends, and I actually would go and tell him about dates and boyfriends and things that became serious as as I got older. Victoria and Melvin shared everything over the year he was in jail awaiting trial. And then he would also still be writing like one or two girls from inside and we would we would totally divulge see you know secrets um, that the other people we were, you know, speaking to or talking to um, didn't realize that we were sharing, you know, sharing our lives together. But Melvin didn't tell Victoria he was in jail awaiting trial for murder. She thought this cute guy she was building a relationship with was in for something minor. It was only after a few letters that she found out the truth. I guess, as you can imagine, you know, I was still living at home with my parents and they were infuriated by the fact that I was talking to Melvin because the newspapers portrayed him as this like cold-blooded teen killer and and this horrible person. And my mom's telling me here, you're going to be you're going to become a murderer, too. But Victoria believed in his innocence and she wasn't alone because many people at the time did. Remember, Melvin had 19 alibi witnesses. So you start writing him while he's in jail before trial and then he gets convicted. I mean, what was going through your head then? Um, so I was in shock and that was for me at the time was obviously extremely difficult. It was literally like time stood still. And, um, I, I, I wish no teenager or anyone would ever have to go through that. The trial was chaos. There was so much publicity around the case 
that Melvin's court-appointed lawyers all recused themselves due to their own various conflicts of interest. Five of them, one after the other. In a small town like Reading, this happens often because the roster of public defenders is limited. If any of them have had anything to do with any person involved in the case, they must recuse themselves. And in one instance, the attorney just didn't want to represent Melvin. Melvin had been demonized in the local papers. Eventually, attorney Bill Bespells took over. Although Bespells didn't have a conflict of interest, he came onto Melvin's case late, right before trial, and he only had a couple of weeks to prepare. His first order of business, in an attempt to counter inevitable bias during trial, Bespells requested a change of venue and a change of jury, but both requests were denied. On May 24th, 1999, the trial officially started. The prosecutor, Mark C. Baldwin, went first. He called witnesses who were at Effie's the night of the murder. Rodney Delp testified that he knew Melvin, saw the robbers, and that Melvin was not one of the robbers. Rodney was the one who described the gunman's clothing in the police report. Remember, one was in white pants and a blue hoodie, and the other in black pants and a purple hoodie. That night, again, Melvin wore a black hoodie and khaki pants. That was not what the shooters were described to be wearing. And later, remember, he changed into black pants after the time of the murder. The prosecution suggested this was Melvin's attempt to avoid recognition. This was a blow to the prosecution, one of their own witnesses saying it wasn't Melvin. And there was no DNA or any kind of evidence linking Melvin to the crime. But the prosecution still had their star witness, John Caltigerone. Under oath during trial, John said he was, quote, good friends with Melvin, and that in December 1997, Melvin suggested to him that the two of them make quick money by robbing a local business in the area, like Effie's Pizza. So let's pause for a moment. Now, you might be wondering why John Caltigerone's account of Melvin's, quote, confession held so much weight against 19 alibi witnesses. Well, to start, all 19 alibi witnesses were not called to testify during the trial. Melvin's attorney, Bespells, only called four of them. And two of those four were friends of Melvin's. A jury might see them as willing to say anything to protect their friend. Second, John is the son of Thomas Celtigerone, a Democrat in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And on top of that, John's girlfriend, Tina Valentin, told police she also overheard the conversation with Melvin. They both testified that Melvin confessed to the murder. John and Tina were not the only witnesses to testify for the prosecution, but their testimonies held the most weight. Now, for the defense, although they didn't call all of the alibi witnesses, they did call Cynthia Jacques, the woman whose house Melvin went to near Effie's because she was scared when she heard about the murder. Cynthia's testimony was key. Cynthia testified that it wasn't Melvin who committed the botched robbery. What she said was that John had actually come to her with a plan to blame it on someone else and then collect the $10,000 reward money so the two of them could run off to Mexico with it. Allegedly, Cynthia and John were having an affair. After four days of trial, 
it was time for the jury to decide. After only two and a half hours of deliberation, the jury had a decision. 19-year-old Melvin Ortiz sat motionless in the courtroom, showing no emotion as the jury gave its verdict, guilty of second-degree murder. They ruled in favor of John and Tina's testimonies, and Melvin was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It was a blow to everyone in Melvin's life, including Victoria. She sat through the trial for the cute boys she caught feelings for, when originally she didn't even think his case would make it to trial. And she had to think realistically. Um, I actually had made a decision to move on, you know, and stop stop talking or, or, or seeing Melvin because I knew in my heart um, that our friendship was more, was more than just a friendship. I will say, since back when I when I then turned like 18 or 19, I always knew I'm like I want to I'm like I want to marry Melvin. He's he's like my best friend. We talk about everything. So it was around that time that I I think I was about 20 at the time. I I moved on. Not only did I stop talking to him, but I actually just left the state of Pennsylvania. Melvin was now a convicted murderer, staring down the rest of his life behind bars. Was there ever a point that you you might have lost hope and thought that, you know, you'd be stuck in there forever? Lots of times. You know, you're going to have your, your weak moments, your your hard days, and where you're going to feel hopeless. You're going to feel down. You're going to feel like, man, I'm never going to get out of here. Uh, you know. Melvin has petitioned for post-conviction relief six times from 2001 to 2016, and he's been denied every time. It's like, what can you do? You know, you keep getting shot down from the courts. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to appeal this, and, you know, I'm going to win this on appeal. Man, like I said, I was wrong. I was wrong about a lot of things 24 years later. Here I am speaking to you. I had followed Melvin's case and followed his appeals, and, you know, it was heartbreaking each time I saw saw them get denied because they were time barred. In certain states, there's a limited amount of time you can bring new evidence to the courts. In Pennsylvania, it's 60 days. Um, I think once or twice, I, I actually wrote him a letter like, uh, you know, I wish you good luck on your appeal and just that I want you to know I'm thinking about you. But in that gap of that time frame, we never um, had the type of conversation we had when we were you know, younger. But I always, always thought about him. Melvin thought about her too. If I could describe it to her in one word, I, I would say extraordinary. You know, I mean, she's just a good person overall. She has a beautiful heart. She's beautiful. I love her. And throughout my bed, I used to, I used to always use her as a conversation piece because, you know, a lot of the guys they used to talk about with their friends and. And how things were and, you know, the messed up part. And I used to be like, well, I knew a good one. I had a good one. But Victoria moved on. And by 2005, she was living in Florida. I, you know, obviously was living my life, doing my thing. And I met my my ex-husband. And, you know, we had decided to to get married. And I think six weeks before I was about to get married, I had wrote Melvin this this letter, right? Because, you know, that's what we do. Anytime there's a big 
monumental thing going in, you know, going on in, in your life. You want to share it with the person that you care about most. So I had wrote this, wrote Melvin this letter that, you know, I'm getting married and this is, this is basically what I'm going to do. And, and this is a little bit about what's going on with me. And I, I ended up not sending it. I had it all written out in the envelope, ready to drop in the mailbox. And I just, I didn't put it in the mailbox because I knew, I knew if he would have responded, I for one probably wouldn't have went to the altar. <laughs> it wasn't until three years ago that everything changed for Melvin, Victoria, and their relationship. In 2012, the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for juveniles to be mandatorily sentenced to life in prison without parole. The Supreme Court decision that said juveniles are constitutionally different from adults for the purposes of sentencing. So over the next few years, states started resentencing their juvenile lifers. Remember, Melvin was 17 at the time of the murder, a juvenile. So in 2018, he was resentenced. At this time, a lot of juvenile lifers were actually being resentenced to 25 to life in prison, which for many would have been time they had already served. Melvin's attorney recommended he be resentenced to 20 years to life, which for him would also be time served. But instead, a judge resentenced him to 35 years to life. Although it wasn't the sentence he was hoping for, he figured any shot at freedom was better than none. Like I said, I would always follow his case. And it's just like when he was resentenced in June of, of 2018, it, it was, I, I knew um, that the universe was aligning things. Victoria's marriage was on the outs. At this point, she was getting divorced. And I knew that that was the right time to reach out to him. And, and instinctively, um, when I saw that, that with that resentencing, he would only have 14 years left, Maggie, I thought to myself at the time, I thought, well, I can wait 14 years for him. That's what my gut, um, my heart was telling me. By that time, Victoria had thought a lot about wrongful convictions and being with someone in prison. Um, I'll be honest, back then and even up to a few years ago, I, I didn't realize what an epidemic wrongful convictions are. Mm-hmm. The people that are inside are are actually people. Um, I think the media portrays, you know, people that are incarcerated as these horrible beings, but it's actually <laughs> the majority of them are, are serving time for miscellaneous marijuana charges and um, wrongful convictions and crimes that have nothing to do with with public safety. Now I'm finding out as I'm as I'm older and there's more people that are wrongfully convicted coming home. I'm finding out that that's more common than I thought it was at the time. She figured she'd do it. She'd jump back in with Melvin and fight to exonerate him. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So do you remember what it was about Melvin's case that kind of struck you? Well, there are a number of features. I mean, one is the fact that he was a juvenile and uh, such a clear victim, in my view. There was zero evidence, actual evidence against Melvin and significant evidence that he was not there and it was impossible for him to have been there. This is Mark Howard, professor of government and law at Georgetown University. He co-teaches a class called Making an Exoneree with his childhood friend, Marty Tankleff. Marty himself is an exoneree. In the class, the Georgetown students investigate wrongful conviction cases and advocate for their innocence and exoneration. Victoria, now fully committed to Melvin and his exoneration, reached out to Mark's team for help. And after reviewing Mark's case, the Making an Exoneree class decided to take it on. To me, I mean, it's frankly a screaming case of a wrongful conviction. Melvin's case has a lot of the classic hallmarks, such as the lack of evidence, the rock-solid alibi, actually 19 alibi witnesses, and especially... The shakiest of witnesses coming forward who have a motivation, which is to collect reward money, and then two, to get the trail off of them. Mark is talking about John Caltigerone, the star witness, and his girlfriend Tina Valentin. 
Now, I mentioned that John is the son of a Pennsylvania politician, so jurors may have seen him during the trial as particularly credible. Well, it wasn't until after the trial that previously hidden information about John started to surface. So one, John had an extensive criminal record himself. His record was never admitted. Um, It was later even expunged and, and none of it was disclosed to the jury. And he came forward as if he were a credible witness and, you know, upstanding citizen, which he's far from. Mark believes this has to do with who John's dad was. Thomas Celtigerone, who was a state representative in Pennsylvania and as head of the Judiciary Committee, he controlled the budget of the court system. And so you're talking about someone with huge influence over the court system, over the judge, over the prosecutor's office through his political role. And so that, in a sense, gave John cover. His record was never admitted. It's very, very suspicious. And when you add that to the fact that there's nothing else against Melvin other than this testimony and then the kind of pressured testimony of his girlfriend, you think something is rotten here. And something may have been. Tina was only 16 and pregnant with John's child at the time of the trial. In 2005, when she was 22 years old, Tina came forward and admitted that John pressured her on what to say. She had lied about everything. She began speaking up about the truth after her son died, which she interpreted as karma from God for knowingly taking Melvin's life away. In her recantation, she says it was John who committed the murder. And remember at trial, Melvin's friend Cynthia said the same thing that John told her he wanted to run away with her for the $10,000 reward money. One of the members of Melvin's team at Georgetown is now part of our team at Wrongful Conviction, Ismari Guadarrama. Here's what Tina told Ismari in an interview about what happened that night in December of 1997. Tina said she spent that day shopping and saw John as soon as he came home. John's speeding past the house. Now he's supposed to be at work, but he's flying past the house and everything. And he came and he picked me up and told me to grab the bag behind the door. And I didn't know what it was. I'm like, what bag? He's like, the bag behind the door. According to Tina, the bag contained a mask, gloves, and a hoodie. And then that evening is when he sat down with me more and told me what supposedly had happened. That him and Melvin supposedly went in and robbed the pizza shop. I didn't believe it because, one, Melvin was at a birthday party. When that all was said and done, John started opening up a little bit more to me. He's like, look, you are going to have to say this and say this and say this to get them off my ass. They think it's Melvin and let them think that. So if she knew Melvin was innocent, why did Tina agree to testify on John's behalf? Scared, fear, not just from him, from his father and his father's pool and people that he knew. I had a bunch of people involved trying to pressure me from the family. Did you ever experience any sort of guilt or stress at the time of the trial when you were 16? Yeah, that was a lot. 
me sitting there on stand saying that it was Melvin and I wholeheartedly knew that Melvin had nothing to do with any of this. Since 2008, Tina has been working with Melvin's family to present her testimony before a judge. Melvin has attempted to use Tina's recanted testimony and admission of perjury several times. But again, the courts keep denying it on the basis of the evidence being time-barred. It took 10 years for the courts to hear her recanted testimony. In 2018, when the judge finally did, he decided that although he believed her, it wouldn't have changed the trial's verdict. Here's Mark again. You know, I think there's so many different features to the case. You know, talk to Melvin himself. He is a kind, intelligent, caring, loyal, just a person with integrity. And he's someone who presents zero, and I mean zero, threat to public safety. To think that Pennsylvania taxpayers are spending close to $50,000 a year to keep Melvin Ortiz in prison for something he didn't do since he was a child, and that we have elected officials who are trying to make that permanent for the rest of his life, it's just unacceptable. We should also note that Mark Baldwin, the district attorney who tried Melvin's case, was cited in another wrongful conviction case, that of Roddy Johnson. In that case, District Attorney Mark Baldwin was cited for egregious prosecutorial misconduct. Mr. Johnson was exonerated in 2020. And to me, that suggests that every case that prosecutor worked on should at least be looked at. And Melvin's case being one of them and Melvin having many other hallmarks of a wrongful conviction, I think that adds even more power to his claim. Melvin says being incarcerated has definitely put a strain on his family and their relationship. You know, there are gaps between our relationship with my family and stuff like that. There are gaps, you know, don't get it messed up. But, you know, we try to bridge those gaps because his family is important, you know, because especially in a situation like this. I guess one of the things that bring us together is my innocence. I mean, his family has spent um, probably close to $100,000 in attorney's fees just trying to bring to light the suppressed evidence. They've they've had to move. They've had to downsize. They've had to um, refinance, you know, their original house, all types of financial impacts, as well as the emotional. Melvin's dad, Juan, is still working six days a week at the age of 78, trying to pay off the family's debts. You have two parents working two jobs to pay attorney's fees. And you also have, you know, Melvin calling from the inside. And keep in mind, you know, when he went in, he was 18. And up until now, you know, the, the physical trauma, the, the physical abuse, he's, he's young and he's surrounded by older persons who have been there much longer than him. It's extremely, it's extremely stressful um, and oppressive. While in prison, Melvin spends his free time reading, exercising, playing chess, and talking to Victoria. What are your plans for the future when you get out? You know, my plan is to to marry Victoria, see if we can build a family from there. Um, I just want to take it one day at a time. I just want to find peace. I mean, after this experience, like, the word 
piece is, is, is very strong for me. Okay, so my last question is, is there any kind of, like, food or something that you're dying to have when you get out? Mom's cooking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something, just mom's cooking. I miss that the most, yeah. Melvin is currently appealing the 2018 resentencing decision of 35 years to life. As of right now, he's eligible for parole in 2032. The second perpetrator in the robbery and homicide of George Klauser has never been found. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Mike Poli. When they were interrogating me, they asked me, who, you know, who do you think murdered your mother? There's only one person that I know that hated her that much to do that to her. Uh, and what I've seen was Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, researcher Lila Robinson, story editor Sonia Paul, fact-checking and additional reporting, Ismadi Guadarrama, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. Special thanks go to Mark Howard and the Making an Exoneree class at Georgetown University. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrongful Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.